Our scripture for today comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, verses um, 1 through something. So it starts, at, it starts at, I think, or something like that. It's up there. There we go. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they don't have any wine. Jesus replied, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby, there were six stone jars, probably about as big as this table, that were, um, that were ready for the Jewish cleansing ritual, and each able to hold about 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servant, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some from them and take it to the head waiter. And they did, and the head waiter tasted the water that had become wine. He didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter, head waiter called the groom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. They bring out the second-rate wine only when the guests are already drinking freely. You kept the good wine until now. This was the first miraculous sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, last week I talked about growing up in, in College Station, and I grew up going to games at Kyle Field um, often, all throughout my childhood. So my, my grandfather, who was an Aggie, had season tickets next to my dad, and so um, they had four tickets um, for a long time through some, some rough stretches in Aggie football history, um, but, also, but also through some stronger times. I would usually be able to go to a game um, once or twice a year. I would never be able to go to the Texas game. That was never allowed for a child to go to that game. But, um, but I would go, and I, I enjoyed it. And my, my dad had been a, a, a basketball coach when he first got out of college, and he was very athletic, and I did all the sports growing up. I was not as athletic as my father. I was an offensive lineman in seventh grade. Um, it didn't really work out for me, that, that trajectory, but I had friends who, who went to college on scholar, football scholarships. I had, I had two cousins who went to college on, on scholarships and have great careers because of what football did for them. I didn't really get into it much until I got to college and went to UT, and it was not the best time to come to UT. Chris, it was the end of the Chris Sims era, if any of you remember that, when I first got there. Um, and, then, and then Vince Young came, and it was, it was exciting, and, and I remember getting frustrated at, I think Greg Brown was the offensive coordinator. I can't believe I remember that guy's name, um, because Vince Young is, was this amazing athlete, um, but they kept on doing these like screen passes constantly, and it's like, it's a, it was a strategically ridiculous. Um, but somehow they got over it. And the first year at the, against Oklahoma, we lost 65 to 13. Wasn't too bad. Um, I remember sitting in, in Dallas and it's like all the red folks were still there and there weren't many more orange folks with me. I could have sat next to the sidelines if I wanted to at the end of that game. Um, the next year they got a little better, only lost 12, nothing, not too bad. Uh, but then the next year, UT never lost. And then they got to the Rose Bowl in, in California. They were going against the University of Southern California Trojans, which USC was actually founded by Methodists um, a long time ago. They left in like the 50s. They were like, we don't need this church anymore. But it was still, there's that history there that's kind of cool. Um, USC had the Heisman Trophy winner. They had the previous year's Heisman Trophy winner. They had Snoop Dogg on the sidelines. <laughs> it was a powerful, 
It was a powerful team. UT had Vince Young and Matthew McConaughey, but it was a good team too. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a great game. And then at the very end, the last second, Vince Young ran across the, the end zone and UT scored and they won the game and they won the national championship. And I was at some friend's house and we were jumping up and down and we were screaming and we were celebrating saying, we won, we won. Well, you know, we didn't win. We weren't playing the game, but it felt, it felt really good. It felt like celebrating. We were excited. We had something to celebrate. What does God have to say about celebrations? What does God have to say about joy? My friends, we are continuing our series on songs on the Bible and looking at the scripture through the lens of music. There's a lot of explicit songs throughout the Bible, but as well, we can almost turn all of scripture into music because God's love for us is so great, we cannot help but sing. Today, we're looking at Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana, Jesus turning water into wine, or as I, I titled in my song, Jesus Likes to Party. We don't often think about Jesus as a partier um, or a party dude. That's not the common portrayal of, of him in images. But I think that has a lot to do with our modern conception of parties. What does it mean to have a party? What does it mean to celebrate? There are only like a few ways or a few times when like socially you're allowed to celebrate. There's, there's birthdays and, and weddings and anniversaries or, you know, sports championships, things like that. At my point in life, a lot of partying seems like a logistical nightmare of just like organizing all the things and then just like relief when it's over. Um, that's, that's my idea of partying at this point. Thinking about who's gonna show up, who's not gonna show up. It's a tricky thing, but we don't often think about Jesus as a partier. And we don't often think about the Christian faith as filled with celebration. This is especially true for people outside the church. Few would accuse Christians of being inveterate partiers. I mean, few of the common practices or faith of faith are filled with what many would understand as a party. We might have, you know, a potluck one day, a brunch or something like that. We have our, you know, our, our Palm Sunday over at the, the pole barn, but that's not what, um, what many people think of as parties. This is different from most of Christian history. And a lot of it had to do with the, the Protestant influence in the United States. Before the Reformation, there were a lot of parties and celebrations. There were almost like over 100 feast days during the year. And so um, what, what this meant it, is there wasn't a lot of uh, productivity in the workforce because most people only had to work three or four days a week because they had a day off because of the Saints' Day and they could celebrate. And so, you know, life was really hard being a medieval peasant, but then you got the, you got the days off because of Saints' so-and-so. Um, it was nice. And then the Reformation came, and they kind of took all those away, and it became a much more efficient workforce. And there became this idea that, that celebrations had to do with pagan ideas of, of God. And so it had to do with, with Bacchus, the Greek god of, of wine, or Dionysus. And this kind of Protestant view of, of celebrations comes down even to today in a lot of places. We see this with, with our kids in, in junior high and high school and the expectation of that parties aren't the places where, where kid, or reputable kids go. Partying is about the relinquishing of your inhibitions, not celebration. It's about not being yourself. That gets to that, that Protestant idea. So it's other kids who are always going to parties, always celebrating always trying to get away. Or Christian youth are, are the hypocrites who do one thing on Sunday morning and another thing on Friday night. 
But this all is very different from the God revealed in the Bible. When we come back to Jesus again and again, there is a celebration. Jesus is confronted by Pharisees on multiple occasions and saying, Jesus, why are your disciples so happy? Why are they celebrating all the time? Why don't they have a sour face on? Why aren't they fasting constantly? And Jesus replies, when the bridegroom is with them, they will celebrate. They will celebrate. And so we have this first miracle in John at this wedding in Cana of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. John's gospel is different from the other three gospels in a number of, of ways. When you, when you read them, when you even open up a few lines, you can, it's really easy to tell the, the differences. The other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the synoptic gospels, which just means they look at basically in the same way. Matthew starts with a genealogy. Mark starts with an announcement from John the Baptist. Luke starts with the famous story of the nativity. But John starts with a poem, <laughs> a very, uh, very unique poem. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. This beginning is the connection between the Jesus revealed 2,000 years ago and the God of all creation coming to us, revealed most fully in the cross. The creation of all things, everything, through the Son of God. The Word made flesh and dwelt amongst us, literally tinted amongst us or tabernacled amongst us. The word for dwelt is like building a tent. It's the same word used on and the transfiguration when P Paul, Peter wanted to build tents for Elijah and Jesus, tinted with them. It's not that the word came and stayed in your guest house, but put a tent in your front yard. It's a different, different kind of relationship. When we go through the cha first chapter of John, we see a few people. He sees Nathaniel, who's one of my favorites in the Bible. He has a great line. What good has ever come out of Nazareth? <laughs> which, is, which is great. I think about that a lot, even like growing up in College Station. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to finish the joke. <laughs> then, we have, then we have a wedding. Jesus is there as a guest, and they run out of wine. Jesus was not a teetotaler, no matter what the, the tradition of the Methodist church was or, or looked at. I remember, I think I've shared this, my grandparents started a Methodist church in Lake Jackson, Texas in the 50s, and they had a vote on whether or not to be a dry church. And they voted against it. Um, it was a church, church conference in the good old Methodist sense of the word. Jesus partook of the wine. But wine in Jesus' day was different from wine in our day. There were a lot of different um, gradients of alcohol content. And the head waiter or the cupbearer had a very important job because his job was to pick which wine to serve next. And if, like, you know, if the crowd was a little wild, you would, you would do the lower content. If it was getting kind of dull and people weren't talking to each other and just staring at their shoes, you would get the higher content out and that, that kind of job. So it was really important. And wine was a purified kind of water and because a lot of the water had a lot of bacteria and parasites that just doesn't sit well in your belly. Um, so that's why they, they shared it. But, but then we have this part where Jesus comes to the party with his mother. He came to celebrate, not to minister. He wasn't ready to start his ministry. He didn't think it was going to be about him. He just wanted to be a participant in the party. But then they ran out of wine. The large clay jars were empty, and his mom says, do something about this. 
And he says, uh, not, yeah, not yet. It's not my time yet. And then she basically says, come on, Jesus, you got to do something about this. So he does, and he asks the workers to fill up the jars with water, the six jars, and he take, they take them to the, the chief waiter. And then he says this great thing. It's like, usually you save the good wine, you do that first, and then you give the cheap stuff afterwards, um, which is an interesting party strategy. But, but then he's like, you have saved the best for last. The first wine they opened was probably pretty good. A, a wedding was a very unique thing. You save up most of your life. If you're, you know, if you're the father of, of the bride, you've been saving for this day since your daughter was born. You've been preparing all of the resources. You've been preparing the lamb. You've been preparing the wine. You've been saving up money of your harvest over and over again. This is not just a, you know, like a whimsical affair. It's a serious event to bring all the people you know to celebrate this momentous occasion. And then Jesus transforms it. He transforms it. Jesus didn't let the party end or die. He wasn't going on to the next thing. Jesus likes to party. He likes to celebrate. He offers us reasons to celebrate. There are a lot of hard things in this world. There are a lot of challenges. And one of the important things in faith is that faith gives us the ability not to turn our gaze from those challenges in life, not to pretend they're not there. Because that's kind of the easy thing to do. If there's something hard in our life, and we can just like, I'm just gonna shut my eyes and just let it go away. Maybe it'll go away. And you open your eyes, it's still there, and you try it again a few times. Um, but faith gives us the confidence that we don't need to solve everything. We don't need to save everyone. We can look at, at the hard things in this world and realize that God is on the other side. We don't need to pretend like death is not around the corner or sickness is not present. We don't need to pretend that God is like Santa Claus up there giving us presents if we're nice or not giving us presents if we're not. That is not why Jesus came or was killed and rose again. Instead, when the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, when God came down to be with us, it was to make new all things, to redeem all things, to offer us a reason, the best of reasons to celebrate now in this world. For most of us, in most of our life, our life is pretty darn zero sum. If one of us is celebrating, that means another one is not. If one of us gets a job, that means someone else doesn't. If one of us gets into college, that means another kid doesn't. When I was cheering on UT winning the national championship, that, there were a lot of USC fans who were not cheering that day, who turned off the TV in frustration right after it, and probably like, I'm not going to think about football for another year. Um, two years ago, I was in Houston at Game 7 of the World Series. It was going great. It was a great time. We were cheering around. And then the manager somehow pulled Zach Grinke. I don't know why. Um, and the Astros lost. And I was not cheering that day. And I was walking slowly. I was like, I wonder when I'll be able to watch baseball again. But I don't know. I still haven't really got to it yet. Um, <laughs> but the national fans were really happy that day. They were cheering that day. Two years before that, when the Astros won, I was really happy. And the Dodger fans were not so happy. Most celebrations, as well, have to do with invitations. We can't invite everybody to your wedding. There has to be a cap. You can't invite everybody to your kid's birthday party. Oftentimes, there are people you have to invite, but you don't want them to come, and people you'd rather come that you don't have space to invite. We have this, like, this in-group and this out-group. So there's this, this conception of, of celebrations. But there is no out-group with Jesus. Jesus doesn't just turn one jar into wine, but all six. 
Jesus doesn't save the party for a few. He's not just like saving it for the, the bride's table and then everybody else gets the water. He saves it for everyone. To be faithful with Jesus, we need to show the world why we are celebrating. Why we can be joyful even in the midst of challenges in this world. We can receive joy and peace at the Lord's table. No, I'm not saying you should feel guilty if you are not, quote unquote, happy or if you're going through a hard time in life. The point is not to turn that frown upside down. Faith doesn't tell us to mask our pain, but to open ourselves up to others and to the possibility of the transformation by the Holy Spirit in our lives. As Ecclesiastes has it, there's a time to laugh and there's a time to weep. And we don't get to tell other people when their time is, when they should be laughing or they should be weeping. We remember Christ's sacrifice and yet Christ's sacrifice is not the end of the story. Easter comes three days later. Death is defeated. We turn the morning into dancing. All of us, though, are not always in the same place in this. All of us are not always ready. But part of being the church is taking on the celebration for our brothers and sisters. When those around us cannot, we don't make them. If life is hard and you cannot celebrate right now, we stand with you. As Jesus stood with his disciples, as Jesus stood with his friends, Mary and Martha, we mourn with those who mourn. We cry with those who cry, and we laugh with those who laugh. We stand together with a God who stood with us and stands with us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, blessed be the God of comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us so that we can comfort those around us. And sometimes it may not be the time for you to be fully comforted yet. Sometimes you may need to receive the comfort of others. The comfort of others just in presence and solidarity, in prayer, in grace. Confession as well is not about being feeling guilty but letting go of those things that keep us from love, that keep us from our neighbor and keep us from God. Talk of sin is not talk of guilt but the relinquishing of guilt at the foot of the cross. It is letting go of the no we tell ourselves over and over again and accepting the yes of God. As Paul says earlier in 2 Corinthians, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So when you celebrate, when you have the joy of faith, it is not at the expense of the people around you. It is not a zero-sum thing to receive faith. Christ's love is not that way. All of us are included. All are invited to the table of Christ's love because the God who created everything saw you as worthy of celebrating. Not only does God give us cause to celebrate, God celebrates for us, cheers for us. The joy of God is not in touchdowns or home runs, but in the Lord of all creation claiming even you as lovable. God not only loves you, but likes you, delights in you. You are a beloved child of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.